this has been an interesting week. So we have a board out there that says what the topic for the day is. It says kingdom. And I really was planning to start a series of messages on the kingdom of God today. And um, I'm not. I got to like Friday and I just wasn't feeling it. It wasn't right. And um, I got to Saturday. I still wasn't feeling it. And I'm not... I'm, I'm not a Saturday night special sermon writer. That's not my thing. It's done before I leave the office on Friday as much as possible. Like, like I really don't, don't do that. I just wasn't feeling it. And then we added this, like, uh, we, we spent the evening with some friends last night, but I still, like, I have to get up here and do this today. And, and, I, and I felt this direction, and I was really struggling. And then we came in this morning, and the music was a little different. It was a little more low-key, and it was all kind of pushing toward this one direction of God's presence in the midst of some of the trying times. And, and, and when you think about even just this time of year, as we come to the end of winter, right, like end of winter for, for North Carolina anyway, which means we'll have 30, 60, 90 degrees every other day for the next two months, end of winter. Most of us, not most of us, a lot of us will struggle with times of lulls in our emotions during this season. Many people struggle with a seasonal depression during this time. We face these various struggles in life, and it can be difficult in these types of seasons to see God at work, to be reminded that, that God is writing a story through the ups and downs and that, that there are things at work that we don't see. And as I came to thinking about today, there's just a singular word perspective that kept coming back. Because you, you see, Jesus taught the gospel, this good news, and he proclaimed that there is the kingdom of God breaking into to everything, breaking in as a, as a new reality, a new way of being. And he, and he invited us as human beings to join in this revolution of love that drags people out of the margins, that connects people across everything that separates us, that shows us a way forward in life other than violence, that gives us a hope as it brings us together, like he invites us to something. And he, and he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your, your will be done. And then he showed us how to be the answer to that prayer. Right? As, we, as we love those around us, as we, as we serve our spouse, and as we, we mentor and develop our children, as we invest in our community and serve those around us, as we uplift the downtrodden, as we feed the hungry, and we clothe the naked, and we, and we reach out in making these tangible differences, we are a part of that answer to our prayer. And he, and he invited us into that. And he said, though, this mission I've called you to, this kingdom of God... It's too big for you alone. So I'm going to give you my spirit. We see it in Acts chapter 2 and known as the day of Pentecost where he gives us his very spirit. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is given to all believers as that strength, that power, that source of being able to be all we're called to be and do all that we are called to do. And he makes promises in our life for things like peace and joy and hope and strength, not to like solve all our problems and give us the lottery, but that he will be with us and guide us and strengthen us, and that in him we are more than overcomers. He promises us that he can set us free 
from all that oppresses us, from everything. We can be a part of the, the freedom of those who are actually physically oppressed, that we can be a part of the, those, the freedom and find freedom in ourselves from, from addiction and fear and shame and isolation, that we can really be free. And he even says that, that I will give you life, the fullest kind of life. But then, but then, I, then I walk the streets of Goldsboro, and I, and I spend time with friends, and I, and I, and I connect with us, and I, and I meet people who, who claim this name of Jesus, this loyalty to Jesus. And, and our lives don't often look like this. We live bound up, defined by fear, always afraid, and it makes us easily manipulated. Right, all we have to do is, is, is convince us to be afraid of another thing, and they can get us to do whatever they want us to do, pay for whatever they want us to pay for. And, and we live by this fear, and if it's not fear, it's shame, right? We have these shame gremlins always whispering in our ear, you're not enough. You're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not young enough, you're not old enough, you're not tall enough, you're not big enough, you're not whatever enough. We hear these gremlins like just whisper every time we think we're going to step into something God has for us, every time we're going to resource someone, every time we want to believe, we just say, no, we just hear, like, you're not enough. You're not enough. You don't believe enough. You don't have faith enough. You're not good enough. He doesn't care about you enough. You're not enough. And if we can bounce past that, if we can struggle through and overcome that gremlin, then we hear the one that says, well, who do you think you are? Like, who do you think you are? You really think you can do that? You really think you can make a difference? You really think you deserve that? And we live bound in, in fear and shame. We, we operate with mindsets of scarcity instead of abundance. right? Like, like we run ourselves ragged. And then we, we sense this call of God. We sense this move of God. We sense this challenge of God to be or do something. We say, well, I don't, I don't have enough money to do that. Well, I don't, I don't have enough time to do that. I just don't have enough energy to do that. And we live like there's not enough. Like we can't, we can't give, we can't help because then I might not have a, enough. I might, I, you know, I just I need my, my me time on the weekends. I only get two days to sleep in. Like church, 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock, that's kind of early. Like I, I'd rather go to brunch. Our time, what, where is it that we are sensing either scarcity or abundance? We live caught up in our circumstances and we act defeated and, and hopeless instead of hopeful and confident. So many of us aimlessly wander from one thing to another, hoping to find that thing that will finally help us make sense of ourselves we grab at everything because nothing does the job and I, and I and I just ask this question why why and I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that we live below our calling below our identity below our possibility and potential is perspective now listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk today, and whether, whether you're a follower of Jesus, that I think this really connects, if, you, if you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff, trust me, the things I'm about to talk about will help you too. Because like it, it, it comes down to this perspective. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. Middle of the book, start working your way to the back. Google it, use your phone, whatever works. Matthew 6, 22 says this. 
Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. He's not talking about your skin becoming luminescent or anything like that. And it's kind of this this metaphor that, that comes out of a Hebrew world. But it has to do with what you see. That, that however you see things determines everything. The perspective you have determines everything else. The perspective you have determines everything else. Our perspective becomes our reality because we act on it. Right? Like if I think I have a reason to be afraid, then I'll act afraid. It's kind of like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear that noise. You don't know what it is. The dog's acting weird. So it must be something. I mean, it's a squirrel on the roof, but you don't know that. It could be a bear. It could be a burglar. It, it could be Sasquatch. But we're, So our immediate reaction, because our perspective is something scary is out there. Our heart rate picks up, and it takes us a minute to calm back down and go back to sleep. It's all about perspective. It determines everything. I get that was kind of a silly one. But here's, here's what I mean. And, and, and here's the real problem, is that because of our perspective, many of us are, are living with limited potential, setbacks, and missed opportunities every day. Because the way we see God, our perspective about God will determine our perspective about ourselves, which will then determine our perspective on our circumstances, and that then will determine the strategy or the approach we take to life. So here, here, let me give you just a kind of image for this. I'm going to use the, the two initials, DP, for distorted perspective. Distorted perspective. So if we have a distort, wow, that's purple. Um, sorry. Easily distracted. <laughs> distorted perspective of God will lead to a distorted perspective of ourselves Uh, then a distorted perspective of our circumstances. And then a distorted strategy. And with a distorted strategy, we'll always end up with setbacks, missed opportunities, failures, disappointments. And more struggle than we really want. And the really crazy thing is, wherever we get distorted, everything downriver gets contaminated. I'll give you an example. I lived a long time with a distorted perspective of myself. I lived a long time attaching my value to my performance. Which led to this paralyzing fear of failure. I had, I, had, I, had, I had convinced myself, I had this perspective that I would only be liked if I did well. If I performed well. In high school, if, it was, if I was good on the basketball court, then I would be liked and girls would date me and this, that, and the other. Right? Like followed this line of thinking. And, and then it, as, I, as I got older, it stayed with me. If I didn't do well, then people would write me off. They wouldn't like me. They wouldn't care. And I'd be all alone. And because I had this perspective of myself, 
as only being worthy of anything if I could perform well, I looked at every circumstance through those lens. So instead of seeing great opportunities, I saw chances to fail. Instead of seeing a risk worth taking, I saw myself being written off when I couldn't measure up. And when I was forced into a circumstance that stretched me or pushed me or was difficult, the way I would deal with it was go all in on the task. And the relationships around me would get pushed to the side because I could not fail. I couldn't let myself fail. I couldn't take that chance because then what would I be if I failed? And so I saw every circumstance, every opportunity, every chance, everything through this. And so my strategy was don't fail, ever, at anything. So I have this kind of reputation around those closest to us that don't play board games, they don't play games, and it goes back to this, because that would get a little too intense, because I don't fail, I don't lose, so I just don't play now. <laughs> I'm getting better. I'm starting to play a little bit and even be okay losing. God's funny. He's got, I'm coaching a basketball team. We've lost every game. He let me, <laughs> he let me, get, he let me get into a place where really I had no chance because I failed in a job and then failed multiple times. Got fired, pushed out. It was, it was, it was horrible. He just, he just let that happen. But I would, I would live this strategy. Avoid any chance you might fail. If the, if the risk has any chance of failure, stay away. Like in high school, that meant if she might say no, don't ask. Right? Don't, don't, don't try out for a team you're not sure you're going to make. Don't try anything you're not going to be able to do. Then as you get older, don't take a job that's beyond what you're, you're able to like excel and look really good at. And, and, I, and I became afraid of failure and being written off. And I kept people at a distance because I didn't want them to see the little ways that I failed every day. And I missed opportunities and missed relationships and broke relationships and hurt things because of this strategy. We all distorted. And what it really came back down to that I didn't even realize is that I had a distorted view of God. Somewhere along the way, I believed that God would only be pleased with me if I did all the right things all the time and said all the right prayers and always kept all the rules that everybody said that God cared about. And so I lived in this constant fear because of a distorted perspective, a distorted perspective. It's a pretty common experience in Scripture. There was a man named Gideon in the book of Judges. Gideon is a sissy by all measures. Like he is, his people are being threatened by an enemy and his job and his family is to go thresh the wheat. So he goes and hides almost in a cave to thresh wheat where there's no wind to blow away the chaff. So he's, he's pointlessly doing this task in hiding from their enemy. And God shows up and God calls him mighty warrior. And he looks around like, God, you must be talking about somebody else. I'm nobody from nobody family in nobody clan, and do you see me hiding right now? He's like, you can't possibly mean me. And then later, an angel comes back and reaffirms what God said. It says, mighty warrior. 
And at some point, Gideon finally says, okay, I'll trust your perspective in spite of what I see. And he ends up leading some of the greatest victories in Israel's history and some of the weirdest. Like they won a battle with 300 people and torches and lamps and no swords. It was the weirdest thing. But he experienced this remarkable thing because he he was willing to trust God's perspective of the situation and himself and God's strategy, and it was unbelievable. But he was going to miss it if he remained underestimating who he was because of a distorted perspective. Now, Samson. Samson is another story in the book of Judges that had the exact opposite problem of Gideon. Gideon underestimated himself, and Samson overestimated himself. He was strong as a Nazarite. God gave him supernatural strength, but he told him, if you cut your hair, the strength goes away. Right? Gideon failed to realize, because of a distorted perspective, that every victory in his life was because of God. Every victory in life comes from God. Every success comes from God. And you're like, no, no, I worked hard. Yeah, but who gave you the ability to work hard? the mind, the strength, the body, to work hard. Every victory and success comes from God. He failed to see that. He overestimated himself. He had a mis, under, mis, mis, uh, a, a distorted perspective of himself. And, and, and he, he started, because of this, flirting with the wrong girl. And he became blinded by this Deep love he had for this girl. We'll assume love. If not that, at least deep lust. And she said, Samson, tell me the secret of your strength. He didn't quite trust her, so he made something up. He didn't tell her it was his hair. He said, oh, it's, it just tie me up with new ropes. And that, that'll take all my strength away. So she ties him up with new ropes and brings in his enemies to kill him. He breaks the ropes, kills the enemies, and goes back to take another nap. And she asks him again for the secret. Three times. The dude never wakes up. She's trying to kill me. Oblivious. Messing with the wrong person. Overestimating his strength. Overestimating where it comes from. Failing to have a right perspective on himself. So he eventually tells her the secret. She cuts off his hair. He ends up blind and dead under a pile of rubble. Opportunity, if there was ever one. All because of a distorted perspective of himself. Now, last is Peter. Peter, the rock, right? He is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church, who sinks like a rock because he lost perspective. He's a disciple of Jesus. Disciples at this time of a rabbi, their job was to do whatever the rabbi did. Rabbi Jesus, walking on water. Peter says, so I need to walk on water too. Jesus, tell me to come out there and walk with you. And he does. He jumps out. But then he loses perspective. And suddenly, it's not about the power of Jesus, it's about how big that wave is and how loud that wind is. And he sinks like a rock. And Jesus has to come and rescue him and chastises him for losing his faith, losing his perspective. It's very common. One of the most interesting to me is in the book of Numbers. Numbers is in the Old Testament. You have uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 13. Feel free to turn there with me if you would. <coughs> Excuse me. There are uh, Bibles in the chair. Feel free to use those. If you don't have one, take it with you. Use your phones, whatever works for you. Numbers 
chapter 13. Now, just to give you a little kind of context about where we're at, you have Israel who spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt. God comes and rescues them with 10 miracles, then leads them out being chased by the greatest army in the world of the time. And God leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground, swallows up their enemy, and now brings them to what he's called the promised land, a land he was going to give them. He said, I'll give you victory. This will be your land. And now we're there, the edge of the promised land. And the Lord speaks to Moses, their leader, and he says this. Verse 2, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded. He sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp in the wilderness. Now skip down with me to verse 17 of that same chapter. There we find Moses' instructions. He says this, Moses gave the men these instructions. He sent them out to explore the land. Go north from the, through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like. Find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or is it bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? So do your best to bring back some samples of the crops you see because it happened to be the season for harvesting the first ripe grapes. Now, verse 25, it says this. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned. They returned to Moses and Aaron and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they'd seen and showed them the fruit they'd taken from the land. They brought back this bunch of grapes. It's in some of the verses we skipped. They basically took two men to carry this one bunch of grapes, that much fruit. And this was the report they gave to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. We even see giants there. The descendants of Anak, the Amalekites, live in the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and all along the Jordan Valley. So what we have here, just stopping for a second, is we have 12 spies go into the land. They all come back and here's the facts of the matter. The land is beautiful. It's bountiful. The soil is fertile. Lots of things grow. Here's great fruits and figs and grapes and all of this amazing stuff that's here. But the facts are... They have large, fortified cities. And the people there are giants, descendants of Anak. So that refers back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 6. And one, some translation, it says they were Nephilim there. Nephilim, there is a, the legend within Hebrew tradition that there were, there, were, there were divine beings of some sort who came and had children with human beings, and they were giants, Nephilim. You may have heard the story of David and Goliath, giant Goliath. Descendant of Anak, that kind of thing. So they're saying this land is full of giants, like demigod kind of people. It's, they're huge, and they have huge cities. Nobody disputes the facts. All 12 come back there. Then we hear perspective. First 
from a man named Caleb in verse 30. Because can you imagine? They come back. So there's lots of enemies. They all have great big cities. And they're enormous. And everybody's freaking out. They don't know what's going on. They're getting afraid. And Caleb tries to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. And here's his perspective. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. See, his perspective is built all the way back on what God said to Moses. Go check out the land I'm giving you. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. No obstacle can get in the way of what God wants to do. So Caleb believes the promise, and his perspective is, it doesn't matter how big they are. The land's good. He says it's ours. We can certainly go take it. Doesn't matter how big the enemy is if God is on our side. And then verse 31. The other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. So ten of them, as we find out, have a different perspective. He says, they say this, we can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. Verse 33, we even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Here's the key phrase. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. Okay, so just as a little side note, I've never done espionage. I've never been sent into another nation. But I can't imagine the 12 of them went around to each of these fortified cities and said, listen, we got a bunch of former slaves hanging out just outside of town. What do you think? Do you think they can take you? And they said, no, they're like grasshoppers. Nobody's asking that. You're not talking about it. So they had to assume what other people thought of them based on what they thought of themselves. They failed to see God and his promises. And so their perspective of themselves was that they were like insects. Their perspective of themselves was that they were like grasshoppers that could be smashed and dismissed and pointless. That they had no chance. They saw themselves through distorted perspective. And they began to project that upon others. So when I didn't see value in myself unless I performed well, I assumed other people thought that too. And I would separate myself from people. And I kept a distance. And here, they have this perspective of themselves as bugs. And then their perspective of the circumstances, the land will devour anyone who will go up there. Their perspective of the circumstances became distorted as well. And what I, why? Because they compared themselves to the giants and left God out of the equation. Comparison is one of the fastest ways to end up with a distorted perspective. Comparing ourselves to others is one of the fastest ways to end up with distorted perspective. Some of us, we look around the world and we see others. We look on, on social media and we see others and we see the shining pictures and the perfect marriages and the, the clean children and the clean house and the perfect vacation. And, we, and it's, they're putting out this highlight reel of life and we compare ourselves to them and we feel like nothing. We feel like our life is nothing, that we do nothing, that we're boring, and that it's awful. Verse 
And we see ourselves as this, as this bug in comparison to this great person and all that they have. Or, or we start to compare ourselves to people who don't seem to have it quite as good as us. Have you ever heard this? We do this in church. It's so weird, right? Be thankful. At least you have a home you woke up in. We compare ourselves to try to be thankful. It's absurd. But we do it. We compare ourselves to people who don't seem to have as much or don't have as much together or aren't as far along in their journey so that we feel good about ourselves. Here's the thing about comparison. It's like a very narrow road with very deep ditches on either side. And the enemy doesn't care which ditch he pushes you into. Either way, you end up stuck and useless to yourself and others. Because as long as we're comparing, if we fall into this, woe is me, I'm awful, I'm useless, I'm, I'm a grasshopper pit. Then, then we're no good to anybody. And if we fall into the pit of Samson, like, look at me, I'm so great, I've got this all together, then we're useless to anybody else because we're an arrogant butthead. And we're in the ditch either way and stuck. Comparison is one of the fastest ways to end up with a distorted perspective of ourselves. And it's just what happened to the ten. And when, then it gets crazy. So the, it, leads, it leads to this distorted strategy. We find it in verse, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, Then the whole community began weeping aloud. They cried all night. Their voices rose in great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. Here's where it gets really absurd. This distorted perspective. If only we died in Egypt. Really? You want to die now because you feel that useless in comparison to the giants. When we died in Egypt, or even died in the wilderness, if we had been swallowed up by the Red Sea, they complained, why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Do you hear this? This distorted perspective on their circumstances. Like, it's better to go back to slavery, where they killed all of our baby sons. Do you remember this? They threw them in the Nile. Let's go back there. Let's go back where they rationed us our food and barely gave us enough. Let's go back where all we did is work for them seven days a week for 400 years. Let's go back into that imprisonment where we lived in fear, where we lived in shame, when we saw ourselves as nothing and forgotten by God. Let's go back there because surely God's not going to give us this battle. He's already, he already defeated the strongest nation in the world at this time by defeating Egypt with ten plagues that they had nothing to do with. He already defeated them. Then he lets their army chase them out into the wilderness, opens up the Red Sea for them to walk across on dry ground, and then swallows up their enemy. But he's going to let them die in battle. How absurd. And, and, and yet, we do the same thing. When our perspective of ourselves gets distorted, our perspective of God, we're like, God, why is this happening? It would be better to go back. It would be better. At least, like, I, I was afraid, but I, but I knew where I stood. I didn't, I didn't worry. Right? Or, or I was bound up. I was bound up. You, God, you set me free from that fear. But, but, it, but at least I knew I had that little comfort. Right? Or, or God has set us free from the addiction and we're fighting it day in and day out. It's a battle. We think, God, just why didn't you let me die in that addiction? 
Let me just go back there where I had no relationship. I felt all alone in a band. I was drowning my sorrows and my pain and every emotion and just whatever I could. I'll go back to the to the to open the refrigerator again because I'm sad. Or I'll go back to the gym to feel better about myself. Or I'll go shopping or I'll go to the bottle or the pills or whatever it is. Just God, let me go back there. Because surely you're just gonna let me die here. Right? Like we want to go back to the slavery, to the, the imprisonment of those emotions and that pain and that sin and that brokenness over and over again. He says, why would you go back to Egypt? Because surely you're going to let us die here. We forget. That's why we sang, God, don't let me forget all that you've done and how, yes, at the time it felt like you failed me. But when I look back, I see you've never failed me. You've always been there. You've carried me through everything. You rescued me from things I didn't even know I need rescued from. You, you, you saved me from relationships that were destroying me and I didn't even know it. Yes, you've got me in this time of waiting. I'm sitting outside the promised land. I don't know what's going to happen and I'm scared to death, but you saved me and I remember that. I remember how you brought me through the sea. I remember how you set me back on my feet. I remember that and I know that you've not abandoned me. But so often as believers, our perspective gets warped, it gets distorted, and we're trying to go back into Egypt. This is what they did. This was their strategy. Verse 4. So they plotted among themselves. Let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Sure. That seems smart. But how many times do we do the same thing? Let's just go back. I mean, God didn't answer my prayer this week the way I wanted him to. So maybe there's not a God. God, had, God hadn't been doing things the way I want. Life hadn't been turned out the way I want. So, so God must have forgotten about me. He must have brought me out here to die in battle. I'd rather just die back in Egypt. So I'm going I'm to go back to Egypt. And we do this. And then, there, then you have the perspective, a right perspective, a different strategy. You got verse 5 through 9. Moses and Aaron, they fell face down. I don't know if it was shock at them wanting to go back to Egypt or just a a, a physical form of grieving, but they fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Two of the men who explored the land, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of something or another, tore their clothing. They said to all the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, He'll bring us safely into it and give it to us. I mean, if. He just told you, this is the land I'm giving you. Go check it out. Come back. Make your plan. Let's go take it. So if he is with us, then he'll give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land. For only, they are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us, so do not be afraid of them. The Lord is with us, do not be afraid of them. The Lord is with you, do not be afraid of tomorrow or next week or this year. Do not be afraid of what might happen if you take this chance. Don't be afraid of the rejection, don't be afraid of facing down your obstacles, of taking a chance, of of trusting God with what He's calling you to be, with that dream that He's put inside of you, with that vision that He's given you. Like, don't be afraid because the Lord is with you. He's with us wherever we go. It's a promise that He's made. Don't be afraid. I think there's 
There's a few ways that we tend to get our perspective distorted, like the Israelites here. The first is comparison. Like I said, narrow road, deep ditch either side. The enemy doesn't care which ditch you end up in. You're useless whichever one you're in. You're stuck. The second is isolation. It's the, it's, it's the craziest thing. So if you've been around, you know that um, one of my battles from time to time is depression. It'll hit sometimes a week, sometimes a month, sometimes three. And, and I fight it. My first tendency is to isolate when it hits or when I even feel it coming. Maybe you can relate. When things get hard, ah, nobody wants to be around me. I'll just stay home. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to let anybody else carry it. You know why that's dangerous? Studies have been done. We have between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts a day. I'm guessing the men are on the 12,000 side, the women are on the 60,000 side. Just guessing that. So we're somewhere in there. Here's where it's crazy for both of us, all of us. 80% of those thoughts are negative. 95% of those thoughts are on repeat in our brain all day long. The same negative thought over and over and over again. And when we isolate ourselves, we have a tendency to believe the negative thoughts and lies on repeat in our brain. That's why we need one another. So we're, we're, we're called and created for one another. We pull ourselves out of that hole, out of that darkness, out of the lies, out of a distorted perspective. Because when I come together with God's people, when I come together with friends, when I sit in the coffee shop with a stranger, I start to see the world differently. I start to see myself differently. I start to see God at work in things that I never could have imagined. And then I approach or take a strategy to life that's very different when it's based on truth versus the negative thoughts on repeat in my mind. Because those negative thoughts, they tell me all day, you're not good enough. You're not going to get that right. It's not going to happen. You're doing too much. You're never going to be able to do it. It's not going to work. It's not going to work over and over again, over and over again. Maybe they didn't really care about you. Maybe they don't like you. Maybe this was it. Maybe you did something over and over and over and over again. And then we kind of in the middle of the night when I explode on God and hope that it'll all just get fixed. It's kind of like what we do at the ER in Goldsboro. So Goldsboro ER is packed, especially Friday night, Saturday night, the weekend. And, and, and it's, it's because we just wait until we absolutely have to. Here, it, it kind of brings us to the third one. The third way we end up with distorted perspective is by staying hurt. Staying hurt. Now, don't get me wrong. Grieving has its own timetable, its own crazy journey that's different for everyone. Too many of us choose to stay hurt instead of enter into healing. It's like the ER. Here's where I was going. People in Goldsboro, I've never seen it quite the same in other places. Maybe it is. Maybe ER nurses can, can help me understand. In Goldsboro, Somebody gets sick on Monday, and they ignore the pain all day Monday when the doctor's open, all day Tuesday when the doctor's open, all day Wednesday when the doctor's open, Thursday, Friday. In the middle of the night, Friday night, suddenly the pain is so bad, the hurt's so bad, they got to do something about it. So they go to the ER 
where they sit for 12 hours in pain until they can finally be seen because that's what everybody in Goldsboro did that day and that week. We just delay the hurt. We hold on to it for too long. And, I, and, I, and I'm not talking about playing the victim, but we own a victim identity, a distorted victim perspective of ourselves. And here, here we do this anytime we make an excuse for ourselves by pointing at the past. Well, look, I, I'm this way because of what my dad did. Or I'm this way because of what my mom did. Or I'm, I'm this way because of what my ex did. I'm, I'm, I'm this way because of what my boss did. I'm this way because of them. Well, at some point, when are you going to stop letting them control your life? When are you going to stop letting that wound and that past and that hurt own you today? Right? Get into the doctor's office. Get in with God. Get in with the people who can help you to see things differently and realize you don't have to live hurt. You can be healed. And sometimes the perspective is just realizing that the hurt we feel was really God rescuing from something, rescuing us from something we didn't know was hurting us yet. I'm going to let that one sink for a minute. We get mad at God when something ends or something goes away or something didn't work the way we want and we're hurt by it. He says, listen, I was rescuing you. You just didn't know how bad it was going to be or how bad it already was. You just couldn't see it yet. It's like God trying to tell Samson, get away from Delilah. We just don't listen. And sometimes he's rescuing us and it hurts. But as long as we're letting hurt own us, it will distort our perspective about ourselves. Some of us think we deserve to be hurt. Some of us own that identity and let it be our excuse. And really what happens, and I say this out of love because I've done it more times than I can count. It's a protective wall that we keep up to keep ourselves from getting hurt again. But it's not who we were created to be. It's not how we experience the life we were meant to live or be who we were created or do what we were created to do. Any of that stuff. All gets prohibited as long as we're hiding behind that big brick wall of our hurt. It'll always distort our perspective on ourselves, our circumstance, and lead to an approach to life that just says setbacks and more hurt and more missed opportunities. So what do we do? Quickly, I promise it's quick. Shift our focus from why to who. Why to who. When we're in pain or when we have a distorted perspective about ourselves or our situation, we tend to ask a lot of why questions. Why did this happen to me? Why did they do this? Why is it so up? Why, 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 why? There are no answers to that question. Like, if you've been in the deepest, the pits, there's, just, there's not an answer. And you have to come to terms with that and shift your focus from asking why to asking who. Like, who has my back? Who created me? Who's for me? Who's at work even when I can't see it? Who has promised that he's weaving the good and the bad for my good? And that's God. God has created you. He's chosen you. He's for you. He's not against you. And we start to ask who instead of why, we can begin to see ourselves and our situations more clearly. We can see things as they truly are. But when we get stuck in the whys, we end up mired in the clay over and over again with our eyes on the wrong thing. 
Second is reclaim your vision or perspective. Second Corinthians 10.5, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Another is we take every thought captive. It's another way of saying it. So real simply, you name the distorted perspective. Because as long as you deny it or ignore it, it still owns you. So you name it, and even better if you can identify its source. For an example, I struggled for a long time after I went through a divorce about, I don't don't even know how many years ago, 15 years ago, 17 years ago, long time ago. I struggled with a separation anxiety, but I didn't know it. I wouldn't take opportunities that required me to be away from home for more than one night because I was afraid of being separated from family. I was afraid of what might happen, afraid of the what might happen if I was gone or the abandonment or any of that kind of stuff. So I wouldn't, I had this anxiety, but I didn't know where it came from. I didn't even know it was there until a mentor said, hey, you're passing on things you shouldn't be passing on. Do you think maybe you're dealing with this from your ex? I didn't even know it. But once I named it and I could see it and named its source, then I could remove it and repent of it. Not say I'm sorry for it, but turn around and stop letting it own me and get a right perspective. And that's the third. So you start by naming it, then you remove it, and then you replace it with truth. Replace it with a truthful perspective of first God, a God who is for you, a God who loves you, a God who believes in you, a God who, is, who has plans and purpose for you, a God who is able to take even your biggest screw-ups and bring about the greatest miracles and opportunities for you, a God who is at work at your life, in your life, and you begin to see that, then you can begin to see yourself through His eyes as a beloved child, as one that is able and strengthened by Him, one who's the, who has the Spirit of God living within them, one who is called and has purpose and, and, a, and, a, and a job in this world, that you can have that meaning and identity in Him. And when you begin to see Him and yourself correctly, then you start to realize what's really going on in your circumstances and see them truthfully. Having seen that truthfully, you get a right strategy. And instead of missed opportunities and setbacks, you're stepping into your potential and your opportunities and all that God created you for. All from perspective. Developing a new strategy requires two things, listening and obeying. It's our questions. We ask these same questions all the time. What is God asking you to do? But see, here's the thing that goes along with that. What perspective is getting in the way of you doing what God's asking you to do? Do you have the courage to do it? What perspective is robbing you of your courage? And then the last one is, can I help? Will you let someone help you see the truth? Will you refuse to isolate and compare and enter into community so that you can see and hear and act as you were created to? Let's pray. Father, I, I confess a bit that I stink at perspective too often. I've spent the week overwhelmed and underpowered. 
and failing to see things as I should, and, and I'm sorry, and I need you to help me. I want to see things as you see them, see myself as you see me, and act as you created me to, to, to live into the potential and the possibility that you have placed in me. God, I pray for my friends that are here today. God, maybe there was one or two that, that needed to be reminded that you're for them. Maybe there was one or two that needed to shift their perspective, need to shift their perspective in the coming week. And I just pray, God, that you would empower each of us with eyes to see as you see and a, and a heart to believe what you tell us is true about ourselves, about our situations, our circumstances, about our possibilities. Would you give us the courage to approach life in trust and faith and obedience? Because it's always better than this distorted strategy we tend to create when we don't see things. So would you help us? Help us to see ourselves, to see our community, our neighbors, our friends, the strangers around us as you see them. And may together we become all you created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.